Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the second episode of a conversational spin off season of Cry Like a Boy, a Euronews original podcast that explores how the pressure to be a man can harm families and societies. I am Mampeya Jiao, traveling to five African countries. Cry Like a Boy tells stories of men who dare to rethink their masculinity and defy centuries-old stereotypes. In our previous episodes, we spoke to Adam Adjian, former UN Special Advisor, on the prevention of genocide about the impact such a violent act as genocide could have on men, women, communities, or male victims of rape. Today, we have a different guest, George M. Johnson, the author of All Boys Aren't Blue. And we are talking about a whole different subject and a different kind of violence and how to deal with it as a queer black person from their memories of getting their teeth kicked out by bullies at age five, to flee marketing with their loving grandmother, to their first sexual relationships. Activist George M. Johnson speaks up about their experiences. They explore queer sexuality and encourage black queer people to stand up for their identity. Hi, George, and welcome to the show. So the first question is, why did you feel the need to write All Boys Are In Blue? Why was it important for you? Um, it was important for me to write All Boys Are In Blue because uh, for so long in my life and in the life of uh, many other LGBTQ people, we hadn't been seen or represented, uh, not just in publishing, but in media, television, film, Um, across the board, you don't have a whole lot of stories about LGBTQ people, specifically Black LGBTQ people. Um, I felt we had gotten to a point in time where uh, people needed to learn more about the people who exist with them. Um, black queer people have always existed from the beginning of time. Uh, whether you look at ancient Egypt, um, we've been here at every iteration point, even if our story hasn't really been told. Um, or uh, hasn't been told properly in many cases or told absent the fact that we were LGBTQ people uh, when they talked about some of the things that we may have contributed to society. Um, and so I felt it was really necessary uh, at this point to put a truthful uh, story out about what my experience was as a young queer boy. Um, and I thought it was even more necessary to make sure that the book was uh, specifically geared towards young adults uh, who often have to navigate uh, school systems and uh, entities and just uh, society where they don't feel seen or heard uh, and don't have the resources and education to understand what may be going on with them. Uh, and so, yeah, that was pretty much uh, my reasoning for knowing that it was time to write a book like this um, 
to shift the narrative on what the existence of Black queer people um, has always been. In your book, you open up about your feelings and intimate experiences. Why is it so important for you to show your vulnerability so openly? I mean, for me, it was necessary to be vulnerable and transparent because anything that I kept out of the book only further hindered the people who really needed to read the book and understand and learn not just about society and community, but also learn about themselves, uh, especially if they were also growing up as, as queer people who were looking for some type of resource or looking for some type of understanding or looking for some type of healing. So for me, being vulnerable and being transparent, um, that was the only option. I think the ultimate goal, though, is for heterosexual people, queer people, people who are the guardians of queer people, people who are friends of queer people, uh, to understand what our story is, too, to understand that we don't exist in a bubble outside of community, that we are also a part of community, and that if we have issues, even if they are specific queer issues, because we are Black people, that those queer issues are also Black issues, too. I think it's about making sure that people understand that as Black queer people, we don't separate our Blackness from our queerness. We are both at the same time. The ultimate goal of the book um, was to show that we don't just get to exist as this as this identity or this identity. That when I enter spaces, pretty quickly people realize I am a black queer person, and because they realize that all of my privileges, from the way I look to my oppressions because of my sexuality, all play a role in how people are going to treat me. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was really the reason for my vulnerability and transparency. But I don't think it. I don't think the end goal of society is to to make people necessarily more vulnerable or transparent, but it is to make people more aware, to pe make people more acknowledging that people exist outside of the heteronorms uh, in society, um, and to make people know that, like you know, we deserve the same type of equity, we deserve the same type of rights, we deserve the same type of things that any other. A human being deserves, regardless of what our, our sexuality or our gender is. I think now on TV and in pop culture, we have more representation of queer people and transgender people as well. Do you feel that that is true? I mean, one, yes, we do have more visibility. Yes, we do have more representation. No, we still do not have enough visibility. No, we certainly still do not have enough representation. I can't really gauge whether it's helping yet, especially as we watch multiple states try to ban trans kids specifically from healthcare, try to ban trans people from healthcare, as we watch rollbacks of protections for LGBTQ people across the country. So it's not necessarily that our visibility is then creating more um, normalcy in community, is creating a more accepting, a more acknowledging society, so to speak. I do think it, it does, ha it has had its benefits. We have seen movement, we have seen changes, we have seen gay student, you know, alliances formed at high schools, and we've seen uh, a lot of forward moving things, and we've seen a, a movement towards people, you know, using proper pronouns. Uh, we've seen a movement just towards a lot of uh, promising things, uh, but I wouldn't say we're anywhere near where we need to be in terms of queer, Queer, queer people feeling safe in society. That's still the, the top issue for many people is the fact that despite the amount of visibility we have, despite the amount of representation we have, despite the fact that we are, you know, in the workplace and we are in organizations with heterosexual people and we are in all of these spaces with them, 
uh, we still don't have the safety and we still don't have uh, enough people who have come to a common understanding of our existence and the fact that we deserve to uh, not just exist, but deserve uh, every right to uh, have the same benefits and privileges uh, in society as anyone else. It's still gonna take a lot more heterosexual people leading and advocating uh, because clearly queer people can't make that happen on their own. But you know, I, 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 you know, I would say you know we we had some steps forward in some places while still having some steps back in some places, and so the fight just continues for for us, you know, until we can actually get to a place where we're not just existing in community, but you know, we are safe and we actually have the space to thrive in in community. Do you think people expect you? to be a certain way just because you identify as queer? I don't know if people expect me to be a certain way because I identify as queer. I mean, I think that the stereotype of who queer people are that's been placed into media is, you know, more flamboyant. I guess more like sexually deviant, more like there are certain stereotypes clearly that have been placed out there. I think for us, though, it's like, yeah, we do have flamboyant gays and we have this type of gay and we have reserved gays and we have chill gays and we have this type of queer and we have that type of queer. I mean, I just think that we just haven't, again, I think it goes back more to a visibility and representation issue where we haven't had enough stories of what the totality of our community even looks like. You know, the, the stereotyping of, of us um, is more of a media portrayal of us than anything that, that we've done or that, you know, that we're doing. And yeah, of course, the stereotypes still exist. I mean, but I think that when you have shows like Pose, you know, breaking down a barrier, just like you got RuPaul's Drag Race, which shows a different side of queerness and queer people. I mean, I think we are seeing, you know, across the board where you're seeing what different queer experiences look like um, with my book, with my dramatic reading um, for All Boys Aren't Blue. Like, I mean, there's texts and works and bodies of work that are now showcasing the diversity of our community. Again, a diversity that has always existed pre-colonization. Um, but the stereotypes, they're still there for some. I mean, it, it just is what it is. Like stereotyping is a, a thing that's been around for black folks. It's been around for queer folks. It's been around for a lot of different uh, demographics of people. Um, so, you know, yeah, we still have our stereotypes of what people assume we are and then are shocked by when, you know, oh, I thought you would be like this. And, but that's because the only representation or the only thing that they've ever seen is that thing. So they just assume that, you know, they cast a, a wide stroke across a community thinking that everybody acts the same way. Um, but, you know, we're, we're extremely diversified and, um, I think we are seeing more and more, uh, images of the diversity that we have within community, but it's still gonna take a very long time to break the stereotypes because stereotypes have been here much longer than the diversity has been here of our community being shown, so. So we're talking about the community, but also when it comes to family, for example, you mentioned a lot of love and support that your family embraced you with. Was that enough to make you feel safe as a queer person? No, uh, I, I, I didn't only live with my family. I still had to go out into society. Um, so, I mean, you can be loved at home and hated in your community. So, I mean, uh, that, that's never enough. And I always say love is never enough. Um, you have to also, as far as society and community is concerned, you know, there has to be safety. And there has to be other things and other um, 
benefits, you know, and other privileges and accesses and resources that we should have uh, that we are still denied because we are queer people. Uh, and so, you know, being loved at home was a benefit for me because I always had safety at home, but I still had to go out into the real world where my mother and my father weren't there with me all the time. My brothers weren't there with me all the time. And my cousins weren't there with me all the time. And I had to fend for myself against racism. I fend for myself against homophobia uh, that was still occurring to me uh, while I was in high school and while I was in college. And so, yeah, you know, having the, the safety of my family was a true benefit because there are so many queer people who don't even have that as their baseline. Um, but even with that as my baseline, it didn't stop the fact that I still had to exist in a society where uh, my family couldn't always protect me. After publishing the book, how has your life changed? Uh, yeah, I mean, my life has changed. I've become a lot more visible. Um, you know, social media wise, community wise, world wise, uh, my story has, you know, is being developed into a television show. It's been translated into multiple languages. Um, it has a dramatic reading that's at film festivals all across the country and now going international. Um, so yeah, my life has significantly changed in terms of how I've become someone with a voice uh, to help so many others. Uh, my words have helped so many others. My words have healed a lot of people. My words have um, brought a lot of people to understandings of queer people that they never had before. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I sometimes have to sit back and, you know, realize like the, uh, and be grateful to, you know, the, the universe for, you know, choosing me to tell this story. Um, but sometimes it is a lot of weight on my shoulders to continue to tell the story um, and continue to be the face of this particular story. Uh, like I said, a story that millions of us have. Uh, I'm just one of the first people to be allowed to tell it in this way. And so, yeah, you know, it, it, it's extremely life-changing um, to be the person who All Boys Aren't Blue is about and have had, you know, so many tens of thousands of people across the world, you know, reading my story and seeing my story and all of those things uh, because people didn't know you before you know them. And so it just, it, it creates an interesting space. Uh, with the visibility and everything. But, you know, I'm fortunate to, to have it. I'm fortunate to have the platform to tell this story. And I'm fortunate that my words uh, will exist, uh, you know, in the world and continue to help people uh, for years to come. You also said that this was hard for you. Why exactly was this hard for you? Anytime you look at visibility, the more your visibility grows, you know, that means there, there are more eyes on you for every single thing that you do. There are more people watching you for every single thing that you do. When you go out, especially me, when I go out to LGBTQ events or specific spaces, you know, people are coming up to you. People want to talk to you. People want to tell you about their traumas because your book helped them. So it's a, it's a lot to take on as, as the one person who wrote this book that has helped thousands of others. You know, um, I'm just one person, uh, but I get, you know, direct messages, emails of people's traumatic, very traumatic stories. Um, and, you know, they, they tell me that my book helped them, uh, but it doesn't alleviate the fact that they still pour a lot of their trauma, you know, into, into my space. Um, and so it can be hard at times because you're realizing that there are still a lot of hurt people in this world, a lot of broken people in this world. And even though my book is doing that work to help so many, uh, it doesn't negate the fact that I still know that um, I still have a lot more work to do and that I still carry the burden of speaking for so many people who still feel like they don't have a voice in this world. 
Now, my last question is a little bit of a philosophical question. So in your book, you make a very interesting reflection on how gender roles mark our existence from the moment we see them in an ultrasound scan. In many cases, it means, you know, before birth. So how do you imagine a world in which parents would raise their children without the expectation of them being a boy or a girl? Yeah, I mean, realistically, if you removed boy and girl and you just said that you had a baby that was born with this, you know, this anatomy, it pretty much alleviates all of that. I think the problem is we have made anatomy equal male-female, and then we have made male-female equal man-woman or boy-girl. And so that's really what the actual issue is because a person's genitalia does not define them. Like a person's genitalia isn't going to tell you what your child is going to act like and what innately is going to be your child's emotion and what innately is going to be the things that your child is going to gravitate to. And realistically, it's more of a denial of what they may be interested in or gravitate to, right? I mean, because once a once a baby that is born with a vagina is deemed a girl, if at five years old she wants to play football, you already have people stopping her from playing football. If at five years old she wants to wear jeans instead of wearing dresses, you already have people shaming her and shunning her because she is a girl and she's supposed to wear dresses. And that was all just based on the fact of what her genitalia was. Nothing else. Not, not about who she is, not about what her spirit is, not about what innately she gravitated to. It was simply because your genitalia is this, so you have to act like this. And so I need to imagine a society where parents are less concerned about their child being a thing because of their genitalia and more concerned about, okay, my child has this genitalia. However, in nurturing my child, I'm seeing that my child likes Barbies. And even though society is saying boys can't like Barbies, my child is innately liking Barbies and is innately liking makeup and innately liking to do hair and innately liking to do these things. And I'm going to nurture that because my child's genitalia is, is not, is, it should not matter that much to then dictate before birth what path they should be taking in life and why they should have to fight society against that path simply because a check mark was marked on their birth certificate because of their genitalia. This was a special spin-off episode of Cry Like a Boy. I'm your host, Mafea Jiao. Thank you for listening. I would like to thank again our special guests, George M. Johnson, activist, author of All Boys Are in Blue, an autobiographical novel that urges black queer persons to stand up for their identity. It's a really great book, so if you're interested in the topic, we definitely recommend that you read it. Listen to Cry Like a Boy on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We work hard to produce the episodes, so if you like the show, please help us spread the word give us a five-star rating, or leave a comment. Follow us on Twitter at Euronews is our Twitter handle, and we are at Euronews.tv on Instagram. Also, share with us your own stories of how you changed and challenged your view on what it means to be a man. 
using the hashtag CryLikeAVOI. If you're a French speaker, this podcast is also available in French. Dans la tête des hommes is the name of the podcast series. For more information on Cry Like a Boy, a Euronews original series and podcast, go to euronews.com to find opinion pieces, videos, and articles on the topic. This show was produced by me, Mampeya Jiao, Naira Davlashian, and Marta Rodriguez Martinez. Music by Gabriel Dalmaso. 